0: Jonah and uh, we're studying through the minor prophets and uh, uh, we're going to look at uh, repentance brings revival repentance brings revival we're in uh, Jonah chapter 3 we've looked at chapters one and two already and as we continue our study of Jonah um, we find that Jonah's destination all through the book, has been the city of Nineveh. Now, of course, he took a bit of a detour, right? That's what you can see on the map there. Uh, he uh, took a little detour uh, in getting to, to Nineveh. Uh, but chapter 3, uh, we find the destination is still Nineveh. Now, this often is what takes place in the lives of Christians. Uh, God has a plan, God has a design, God has a purpose uh, for our lives and yet many times we're heading a different direction and uh, we get off course because we think we know what's best instead of uh, following what God's uh, plan is. We have our own agenda, uh, we think we know what we need and all along we've gone in the opposite direction where God really wants us. Now the turning point for Jonah was the great fish. Uh, it turned him around. It headed him in the right direction. Uh, Jonah was chastened under the uh, loving hand of God. He was convicted to bring uh, a, a confession concerning his sin. And then finally he was cleansed. And God forgave him. God gave him another opportunity uh, to do right. And I want you to notice here in the third chapter, uh, Jonah... Uh, is uh, is on the way where he's supposed to go, and we'll see that repentance brings revival. It brings revival individually, and it brings revival to others. And so, the first thing we notice here is Jonah is given a second chance. Jonah is given a second chance. chance. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, The second time. Have you ever thought what would have happened if Jonah got out of the fish, went back to Joppa, and then bought another ticket to Tarshish? You know, uh, here, uh, I think that would be an interesting question. Again, if you and I uh, were God, we'd say, well, that's it, Jonah, you're done, you're out of here, good riddance. But you know, I think there might have even been a second fish, you You know, (laughs) yeah, there might have been a second fish, I don't know. Uh, That's the kind of God we have. But that wasn't necessary because Jonah had already learned his lesson. Now he was going to Nineveh. He headed for Nineveh, the place where God had intended for him to go. I I think the same thing could be said of the prodigal son. Uh, Suppose the next year that the young man had said, Dad, give me some money again. I'm going to go into the far country again. Do you think the father would have given him the money? I think he probably would have. Uh, The interesting thing is that the boy didn't go into the far country. Why? Because he's a son of the father, and he didn't want to get into that pig pen again. He had learned his lesson. And that's what we ought to be doing, is learning our lesson when God gives us another opportunity. God's children may get into sin, but they surely are not going to live in sin. Pigs live in pig pens And sons live in their father's house. It's just that simple. And it's just that important. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. You know, our God is a God of second chance. And it's a wonderful, marvelous thing. God will give you a second chance, and he'll give you uh, more than that. And I know uh, he's been patient and long-suffering with me. Uh, he's not willing that any should perish, and if you're his child, he's going to hold on to you. You can be assured of that. Now Jonah gets the call from God a second time. Uh, do you think the great corporations of today would do that? Do you think uh, General Motors or Shell Oil or uh, some uh, big business uh, that's uh, uh, going about the... Uh, do, uh, making something or manufacturing or providing some kind of service would give you that kind of a chance again? I guess it would be d- dependent upon what you'd done. But uh, let's say one of the banks, uh, which is, uh, you know, we have some, uh, we have quite a few banks in in, in Spooner, uh, and some of them are not making it, but, uh uh You know, if you had a a big bank, let's say uh, like uh, Chase Bank. Uh, That's not uh, a bank we have here, but it's a big national uh, type bank. And if they had a person who would embezzle a couple of million dollars and that person would disappear down to South America someplace and then a few years later come back and say, you know, I'm sorry I took that money, would they give him another chance? Uh, probably uh, not give him his job, job back. Of course they wouldn't. Uh, that person would not be given their job back. He'd probably be taken and, and put into jail. But uh, God is a wonderful God in the, se- in the sense that he gives people a second chance. And uh, we can mess up, and we can mess up big, but God uh, is a forgiving God. Now, there are going to be consequences to sin, and we may have to live with some of those consequences. but And as that's what Jonah had to do. This is not some, something unusual that God did in Jonah's case. God is not making an exception with Jonah. And think for me about some other examples in Scripture. Uh, think about Jacob. Uh, remember the story of, uh, of Genesis, uh, uh, in the book of Genesis of Jacob, Uh, Jacob failed again and again and again and and until he actually became a disgrace to God. Uh, He became a source of embarrassment to him uh, but God would never let him go. Now Jacob was a a trickster. Uh, He was clever. He tried to live by his own abilities even when he went down to live with his uncle Laban. Laban was smarter than Jacob and he put one over on him but Jacob did what he could and he did it pretty well. Now in the end, Jacob had to flee from Laban and he had to get out of the country. He had, to, uh, he had antagonized uh both his father-in-law and his brother Esau because of his conduct. Uh, but he wouldn't could not keep on like that because that was not God's plan. Uh, he did not or he did want to serve God, but he made a poor showing of it. And again, if you and I were God, we would have said, that's it, Jacob, no more. You're done. Now, you remember at Peniel, uh, when Jacob came back to the land, God wrestled with him one night, and Jacob had to learn something that night, and God crippled him before he got him, but when Jacob saw that he was losing, he finally held on and asked for a blessing. And from that day on, Jacob was a different man. Uh, he was a changed man, as we can see down there in Egypt when he met his grandchildren. Uh, Joseph's sons, Jacob didn't tell his grandsons how smart he was or how clever he was, uh, how he had put one over on Esau or how he had put one over on his father-in-law, Laban. He said, he said this in Genesis 48, and verse 16, he said, May the Lord who kept me from evil keep the lads. What a change had come over him. He was now humble. He was now resting in God. Uh, He was a different man, and God had given him a second chance. Uh, Then you remember David. David, uh, uh, the story of David, even today, many would like to criticize David. Uh, Someone might say, well, why did God say that David was a man after his own heart? You know, David committed murder and adultery. Why would God say that David was a man after his own heart? Well, we need to read what God says in his word. It's true that David committed awful sin, but God also punished him for it. God took him to the woodshed, and he whipped him within an inch of his life. I'm afraid there aren't enough young people today that know anything about a woodshed. What's that mean? What are you talking about, a woodshed? Uh, Some of us older folks know something about woodsheds, don't we? But uh, uh, that's the reason many of them act like they do. But God disciplined David. And finally his heart was broken, especially when his son Absalom was slain. And that was a boy who had wanted to be king. Uh, Absalom had betrayed him. He led a rebellion against David and was murdered. And so David wept. He cried, O Absalom, my son, Absalom, would to God that I had died in your stead. You see, David feared that Absalom did not know God. And so he was heartbroken the rest of his life. And God punished David because of his sin, but God forgave David as well. And he came to him and said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51.12 We ought to be glad that God said, David was a man after his own heart because of his relationship with God. If God would save a man like David, he can save you and he can save me. We ought to be thankful that he's that kind of God. He gave David a second chance, and he'll give you a second chance and a third chance if need be. Uh, What about Peter? Uh, Peter? Simon Peter also stumbled. He fell and got himself dirty. <clears throat> I mean, sinfully, not just falling on the ground. Uh, he, he sinned. He denied Christ, and when he looked through the judge, uh, uh, looked through the jet, that judgment hall, he caught the eyes of the Lord, and they were not eyes looking at him in anger, but they were eyes looking at him at pity and in mercy. Uh, Peter went outside and he wept. And when our Lord came back from the dead, he appeared to Simon Peter privately so that Simon Peter could get things straightened out with him. You see, if you're a child of God and you get into sin, you can come back to God. But you'd better mean business about it. You'd better be sincere. You can go to him and you can tell him what you can tell no one else. And he'll accept you, he'll receive you. He's the God of second chance. And then there's John Mark. Here's another man that failed. Uh, He wasn't much of a missionary at first. In fact, he was chicken. Uh, He had a yellow streak up and down his back. He turned and left the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Good old Barnabas, he wanted to forgive him, take him on the second missionary journey, but Paul says, I won't take him. I'm through with him. You see, that's how we are. Uh, When someone does something, we say, "Nope, that's it. I'm done." That's kind of the way Paul was. Even though Paul was a great man, a great Christian, that's the way his attitude was. Now he later changed his mind, of course, because God will uh, will receive, and God did receive John Mark. And so Paul wrote in Second Timothy, "Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry." John Mark made good, and aren't you glad that God is a God of second chance? You know, Jonah's story here is an illustration of how God treats his children when they sin, and they come back to him. The prodigal son came home, and when he came home, he didn't get a beating, he got a banquet. He didn't get kicked around. He got kissed. Instead of being rejected, he was received. His father took him back, and God will take you back as well. That's how wonderful our God is. Jonah was given a second chance. Notice, secondly, Jonah obeys God's command. Jonah obeys God's command. And the first thing I want to mention here concerning God's command... And Jonah's obedience to it is that responsibility comes with forgiveness. Responsibility comes with forgiveness. Let me ask you, did God say to Jonah, yes, I'll forgive you, so now you don't have to go to Nineveh? Is that what he said? I forgive you, you don't have to go. Now, you don't have to do what you were originally commanded to do. In other words, does forgiveness absolve us from responsibility? Well, of course, the answer is no. God's forgiveness all through the Bible comes with responsibility. Forgiveness is not an end in itself. Forgiveness is a means to an end that God is getting us to the place where we can be used in His service. And so responsibility comes with forgiveness. Now, that's a two-edged sword. And if you take the positive side of that first, you'll notice that not only will God forgive you, he will use you. You know, God gave Jonah his job back. He didn't stick him on the sidelines and say, "Uh, you just sit over there and I'll find somebody else to do it. Uh, He didn't throw him on the shelf. God put his repentant servant back in the game. Now, there are certain kinds of sins, I think, that will disqualify certain Christian servants from certain aspects of Christian service. But there is a place of ministry in the local New Testament church for every repentant person. Not only will God forgive you, he will use you. And I wonder if there might be people who are sitting here tonight that could say, well, because I sin in a particular way or in a particular length of time, there's no place for me in God's service. Listen, on the authority of this text, that's not true. There is a place of service for everyone. There is a place in the local church for everyone. Not only will God forgive you, he will use you in some way. Now, I mentioned this is a two-edged sword. We just talked about the positive side, but notice the challenging side is this. God expects forgiven people to get with it. You see, his forgiving hand should not be viewed as a feather bed. It should not be viewed as an overstuffed chair. It should not be viewed as a Christian couch God's forgiving hand should be viewed as a job assignment, as a ministry path. Uh, Forgiveness is a means to the end of God getting us to the place where we can be used in His service. Uh, Turn over to uh, Luke chapter 24 for a moment. Hold your place there in Jonah. Uh, Luke and verse, uh, or chapter 24. And I think this is kind of a parallel example of what we're studying here in the life of Jonah. Luke 24, you have a passage here, records an event that occurred after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just before the ascension, his ascension into heaven. And it illustrates the relationship between forgiveness and the responsibility that God gives us After forgiveness. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 24, verse 36. Verse 36. Here it says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye uh, here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise the third day. Now that's the provision of forgiveness. Uh, Christ died on Calvary's cross, cross to provide the forgiveness of sin. Now the next two verses illustrate the responsibility the disciples had been given because they were forgiven. Look at verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and ye... Ye are witnesses of these things. You see, it's wrong to think that forgiveness absolves a person of responsibility. Again, it's not a feather bed. It's not an overstuffed chair. God had provided forgiveness for Jonah so that he could get busy fulfilling the mission that he had been given in the first place. God provided forgiveness for the disciples so they could begin accomplishing the mission that God had for them. Now, here in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2, God told Jonah, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So notice here, secondly, that responsibility uh, comes with going. Responsibility comes with going. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Now, you notice that Jonah is now doing things according to the word of the Lord. Uh, That's a very important aspect there of verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. What God had told him to do, he was now doing it. The first time he had set sail for Tarshish, which was not according to the word of the Lord. Now he's going to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And I want you also to notice the words, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city. Now we've seen that word great a number of times already uh, in the book of Jonah. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, there was that great city. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 4, there was a great wind. In chapter 1, and verse 12, there was a great tempest. And then there was a great fish in verse 17. And now here there's a great city in chapter 3, verse 2. And in chapter 3, verse 3, it's an exceeding great city. You see, each time it's used, it seems like it's giving us the idea that it describes something to be feared, maybe to be Overwhelming. Now, Nineveh was a great city. It was great in size and as great in wickedness. Uh, This city was guilty of the same sins which we read about in other prophetic books that brought God's judgment. Uh, In the book of Amos, the books of Amos and Hosea, we find that the reason God brought judgment upon the people was because of their luxurious living and their sexual immorality, because of their godless music, uh, because of their drunkenness. And the same things could be said of Nineveh. Uh, They were given over to idolatry. Uh, Their cruelty and brutality to their enemies was unspeakable. And there was gross immorality in this city. Uh, It was a city of wine and women, of the bottle and of the brothel, of the sauce and the sex. Uh, These were things that identified the great city of Nineveh. Can you imagine these people repenting and coming to God? You know, sometimes we see the sin around us and we say, well, I don't know. Uh, We might even say something like, it'll never happen. Let me ask you, have you ever said that? It'll never happen? Thinking about uh, someone that you know that's a a real uh, down and out sinner, you know, and you've been praying for them and yet you think, well, it'll never happen. Maybe you're talking about uh, some issue in politics and a person makes a particular promise and uh, you hate to be skeptical, but this person has made promises before and broken them and then you finally say, Well, that's never going to happen. Or maybe it involves some sports, you know, some team that's going on and on. Uh, remember uh, here a few years ago, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series for 108 years. You said, and everybody was thinking, It'll never happen. Well, it finally did happen. But have uh, uh, you ever said those words and been wrong? Most of us probably would use these words, it'll never happen. Or we might say, it's impossible. Now let's just take this discussion down a much more serious level. you ever said these words about a person in your life coming to know Christ? Perhaps maybe it's a boss or a co-worker. But in your wildest imagination, you can't picture that person admitting their sin and wanting to repent and turn around. And you say, it's never, happen- never going to happen. It's impossible. Or maybe it's a neighbor. The thought of that person admitting that they can't get to heaven on their own and they uh, need help from God of he- the God of heaven in order to be reconciled to him, you say, it will never happen. Or it's a friend or a loved one. And you really, uh, love this person or like this person, but you, for them to ever place their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, the one able to pay for their sin and one qualified to change their life, you think it'll never happen. Do you realize that some people have written those words over the entire, an entire ethnic group or an entire nation? That they'll never be reconciled to God? You know, we could probably think of some nations right now. He say, oh, they're not going to come to God. Uh, don't tell Tim Smith that. Right? He goes to people that uh, most, most of us say, well, it'll never happen. But it's happening. Now, let's ask a couple of questions here. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if we're drawing this wrong conclusion and it hinders us from doing what God wants us to be doing to help a person come to know Christ? Jonah was given a second chance. Jonah obeyed God's command. Even though the challenge was difficult, even though it looked impossible, Jonah obeyed. Notice number three. Jonah delivers God's message. Jonah delivers God's message. And I want you to notice three things about this message that he gave there. First of all, it was a challenging message. Now, I think it's important that we define our terms. When I use the word challenging, um, I'm talking about something that's not easy to believe. It's not something that the rational mind would think up on their own. It's not something that the rational mind would automatically accept. And if you think God has given Christians a message to proclaim that is challenging for others to accept, be encouraged because you're in good company. Look at the one God asked his prophet Jonah to proclaim. In verse 4, notice the message. And Jonah began to enter the city of a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Those five simple, are actually five simple words in Hebrew. There are a few more in our English language, but in the Hebrew, it's five simple words. Now, I don't believe that that's all Jonah said to these Ninevites. Based on what happens next. But even if you expand that message that God asked Jonah to proclaim to include, you know, who God was, if he explained that, the one who's telling them to repent, uh, if he, if he told them how forgiveness was available to them, if they would repent, and then maybe he, uh, even gave them his own testimony of what happened to him when he didn't obey. Uh, that may have been part of the uh, message. And even if you expand the message God was asking Jonah to proclaim, it to include all these elements, it's still a challenging message. In the sense, it was not easy to believe. Now there's something else that needs to be added to this puzzle. And that is the wickedness the apparent hard-heartedness of this audience. Remember, that's what got this whole thing started in the first place. You remember what God originally said to Jonah back in chapter 1, verse 2, as his reason for wanting Jonah to go and preach to these people? It says in chapter 2, Arise, go into Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. You see, their wickedness was great. And so you have a message that is a challenge to believe, coupled with recipients who are notoriously wicked and hard-hearted. It's not going to (laughs) happen. You know, that's what uh, we would say sometimes. It's not going to happen. There's no hope for these people. There's no way these people are going to repent and believe. But if we push the pause button for a moment and fast-forward... To where we are today, I'm going to ask you, is the gospel message something easy to believe? You know, is what God says about the way of salvation the same as uh, what the natural mind would come up with their own? You know, if you ask a person, how can you be saved? You think they would come up with the gospel? No, they come up with all kinds of works things, you know. Uh, Paul said the gospel is What? Foolishness to those who are perishing. God has never been in the habit of making a message one that was automatically appealing to the natural mind. It's not what the natural mind would automatically come up with on their, on their own. And when you think about it, God, all through human history, has asked his people to carry messages to people that were challenging to believe. Think of Noah. You know, Go tell your family and your neighbors that the world as they know it will be destroyed in a worldwide flood. You're, you're a fool. What about Abraham? Go tell your family to pack up because we're moving to the promised land. I don't know where it is, but I'll show it to you later. <laughs> How about Moses? Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It's not going to happen. That's what we would say. Or how about Moses? Go tell the people, just step into the Red Sea. That'd be a challenging message, wouldn't it? How about Elisha? Uh, Go explain to the people that you're replacing Elijah because he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. What about Gideon? Send all the soldiers home except 300. How about Joshua? Joshua? Tell these people to march around the walls of Jericho seven times. Tell me that God hasn't given some challenging messages, but he's told some people to do that. You realize that we could walk through the Old Testament and right into the New Testament and see example after example after example of this point, and then we would come to this one. Christian, tell the world that sin has separated them from God. But he loves them so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die in their place. So what's the point? God is constantly giving his people messages to proclaim that are challenging to believe. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, here are two answers I think that fit into our study. One is to test the mes- messenger to test the messenger will the messenger do what he's been told or uh, to do even when the performing the job proclaiming the message and it may result in being snubbed or it may be the result in being ridiculed it may result in being laughed at it may result in uh, being called names it may result in being persecuted thrown into prison God gives messages that are challenging to deliver to test the messenger. But secondly, God gives messages that are challenging to believe to test the recipient. You see, for a person to believe the message of God, the recipient has to go from that proud position, I'll be my own God, I'll decide what's true, I'll decide what's right, I'll decide how to gain eternal life, I'll figure it out on my own. And a person has to shift from that position of pride to a position of humility. And they have to say, you know, I'm not qualified to be God, and without Him I can't know what's true. Without Him I can't know what's right. Without Him I can't know how to have eternal life. So I will quietly and humbly come to the Word of God with my mouth closed and my ears open, And this is why the Bible, from cover to cover, emphasizes the issue of faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, notice, secondly, the unexpected response. And I want us to make three observations here. First of all, the people didn't simply believe Jonah, did they? You know what? They believed God. And so the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed who? Jonah? No, it says God. They believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatness of them even to the least of them. The Bible says they believed God, not Jonah. It was not the force of argument presented by a prophet with fancy words or all kinds of convincing arguments. It was the power of God's truth that pierced to the heart. Never rely on your own persuasive powers as, you, uh, as a way to save sinners. Never wait until you have confidence to uh, yourself to speak up for Christ. It is God and his truth that people believe. You must just remain the instrument. Notice another observation here Uh, in in, uh, verse 6. A second observation about the belief of Ninevites is that it was led by the king. Verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe uh, from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And I want to uh, emphasize this point here. No one would have expected a man of his stature to humble himself in a way But that's what God did. His willingness to believe and be open and unashamed about his belief not only impacted his own life, but it impacted many others' lives as well. Let's just make an application here. For most of the people right here in this room, God has put you in a position where others are following you or looking up to you or imitating you. You say, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be looking up to me. Well, they do. I don't think there would be a person that we could, would say, there's someone looking up to you, especially Josh. <laughs> we all look up to him, right? But it really, seriously, the, does the way we live out our belief in Christ stimulate others to believe in him. If you say, well, I haven't come to believe him yet, well, uh, you need to, because this is about your eternal destiny. You need to because of the impact, the way you would handle the issues of life, uh, uh, the issue on your life it's going to have on those God has placed around you. You know, if you're married, you've got a spouse that's watching you. If you're a boss, you've got employees watching. If you're a friend, you've got friends watching. If you're a parent, you've got children watching. If you're a teacher, you've got teachers or students watching. If you're a brother or a sister, you have a sibling watching you. So this is an unexpected response, and it involved the people believing God, not Jonah, and it was led by the king. Thirdly, its genuineness was proven by repentance. You know, we can learn much about the nature of biblical belief by the words we have before us. It's impossible to believe God without repenting. Some, some people today want to uh, de-emphasize repentance. But here we have it emphasized once again. The word means to turn around, to do an about face, to determine the way that I was going is not the way I'm going to continue to go. The way I was living was not the way I want to continue to live. It's an admission that I was wrong. It's a genuine sorrow over the way one has lived. And there's an unexpected response to a challenging message. But notice one more thing in closing. There is complete forgiveness. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, it says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, you understand that when the Bible talks about God repenting, that's a way of trying to use human terminology to describe what God was doing. He changed his course from human perspective because the men of Nineveh changed their course. But when they were willing to repent, when they were willing to forsake their sin, God repented concerning the calamity that he had declared he would bring upon them, and he didn't do it. He didn't destroy the, the great city. Not only did Jonah's Jonah repentance, his repentance bring revival, but Nineveh's repentance brought a great revival. And what a wonderful thing. There's many people in our own community who need the experience of loving forgiveness of God. Perhaps you need to seek forgiveness of God in some area of your life. Uh, Perhaps there's uh, sin and selfishness that's hindering someone else from coming to the Lord. You know, the Lord stands ready to hear your prayer of confession and will forgive you if you come to him. God is a God of second chances. Being God's messenger is a great responsibility, and if you know the Lord, you are one of his messengers. Men and women, boys and girls need to come to Jesus or else they will perish. And so they need to make a choice, but they'll not know what choice to make unless you and I are obedient to God's command to go and give them that message. And God is willing, God is ready for completely forget, to for, completely forgive and not to bring judgment on those who will receive the good news of the gospel so let's be faithful to tell others about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.